challenge. It's a challenge to prove that I can adapt and adopt my policies and best practices and ROI procedures to a two to three hour workday and it works and it does. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm joined today by Michelle Parchman. Michelle is originally a CPA and began her public accounting career in auditing with Anderson in Dallas. After 17 years in big four public accounting, plus seven years with the largest executive search firm in San Antonio, she founded Parchman and Parchman Executive Search in 2009, specializing in accounting, finance, tax, legal, and C-level searches. Parchman and Parchman was named by Forbes as one of America's best recruiting firms, and Michelle has been described as one of San Antonio's most inspiring and influential women. She's also a board director for the Pinnacle Society, which is the premier consortium of 80 industry-leading recruiters in North America. Michelle, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Mark. Glad to be here. Awesome. You referred to me by our mutual friend, John Schlegel. And uh, how how do you know John? John and I are um, members of the Pinnacle Society, and um, I joined prior to his um, introduction to the society. And I think at the very first happy hour, we were sitting at a bar in um, the airport, and we were both watching the OU football game. And we discovered that we were both from Oklahoma, both small towns, and we loved um, Boomer Sooner football. And that's very rare. <laughs> To find somebody that likes an OU football team. So that's our connection. Oh, fantastic. It's funny that you got to know each other in an airport. Uh, have you heard of the LAX test? Yes. <laughs> so Tell me always, more. <laughs> oh, well, just uh, as uh, a criteria for hiring someone, knowing whether you want them to join your firm is, if you were stuck in LAX with this person for an extended period of like hours and upon hours, would you be perfectly happy in their company for that, you know, that sort of duration. And oh. if the answer is yes, then welcome on board. And if the answer is no, even if they're technically qualified for the job, then, you know, sorry. You thanks, have the no. answer. Exactly. <laughs> that's great. So, oh, well, that's cool. I'm, I'm so glad that John put us in touch with each other. And um, tell me about your like transition from accounting to executive search. Why did you decide that this was the, the business for you? Well, that is um, interesting. One thing that you probably didn't know, Mark, is the last probably four years of my career in public accounting, I had transitioned to a business development position outside of being a CPA. I still have my CPA license and I did then. And I did that because at the time we had three young children and the hours were just terribly long in public accounting. And so I had gotten at least a taste of, you know, client service and business development and outside of just pure numbers. And so when Enron um, went down and Anderson was the auditor, and most people know that that's why Arthur Anderson um, was indicted by the DOJ. And I guess we lost 88,000 employees in 354 countries in the year 2002. So we all lost our jobs that year. I was obviously going to make a transition. And so I was going to stay in public accounting and I had two offers and um, a wonderful woman that was on a board with me um, at the Junior League of San Antonio 
was listening to my offers and she was a recruiter. And so she learned everything that was important to me and how I was going to make this decision. And she owned an executive search firm in town. And so she said, let's go to breakfast tomorrow morning. And we did. And she said, I'd like to throw out a third offer. And she said, why don't you come to my firm and build an accounting tax and legal function? Because we don't have that. They didn't do that type of recruiting. And um, ultimately, I made the decision because it was more of an eight to five job. Honestly, it was like six miles from our elementary school. And it just seemed to me like the right time in my career to pivot and do something very different. Wow, that's so cool. That's I'm I'm glad that you shared that with me. And uh, coincidentally, I've got three kids as well. And it is, wow, it is busy. And so one of the things I'd love to talk to you later about is, um, is balance. Because you told me, you shared with me offline that you're a master in a balanced life. <laughs> I want to know more about what that, what that means. But so you... St- Pivoted from accounting to public accounting to, to uh, executive search. And how did things go from there? Well, I would say probably the first 90 days. Now, think about this is 2002-2003 timeframe, and I had no experience in recruiting. And so I would say my first 90 to 120 days, I thought I had made the biggest mistake in my entire life. <laughs> you know, they literally <laughs> wanted me to open up a um, yellow pages, you know, white pages and just start <laughs> calling companies and trying to introduce myself as an accounting recruiter. And I didn't know any of the terminology. As a matter of fact, the reason I'm in Pinnacle is because three weeks into becoming a recruiter, the National Association um, of our personnel consultants annual conference was in San Antonio and I went and they were using all these terminologies like JOs for job orders and SOs for send outs. And I was, I, I left there thinking, this makes no sense. It's not a job order. It's a job. And it's not a send out, it's an interview. And I'm thinking, I'm going to change all the terminology. So I didn't like anything about um, the position in the beginning. And I I thought it lacked process and I thought it lacked systems. And it was just picking up the phone and smiling and dialing. And I thought, I will never succeed in something like this. I'm too analytical and I'm too process oriented. And so I decided to roll up my sleeves and just ask permission to do things my way. And I did. And that is really, you know, I would say my journey. It was very challenging the first six months. I did not think I was going to like it. I didn't think I was going to succeed. But once I was able to kind of roll up my sleeves and lay out, you know, processes, and this is how we're going to strategize to get new clients, and this is how we're going to serve them, and these are the steps that we're going to follow. Once I I, I put that together and I built it, and I had a team by that time, I think I, I had hired four or five people. It was great, but beginning was rough. <laughs> wow, that's such a great story. I thank you. I, I also did not enjoy recruiting when I first started, <laughs> and it was similar, like thrown into the deep end and literally like, yeah, uh, here's a phone, here's a computer, go and make cold calls and, and find you know jobs to work on and so on. And I thought, what have I gotten into here? This is different to what I expected. Um, so you mentioned that first sort of six months, which was really tough. Um, what was going through your mind, like coming into work every day and, and feeling so out of your depth? You know, I think I, I typically persevere and I, I want to succeed and, and I'm motivated. And so I just was not willing 
to not let this work. And I love the idea of it. But then I started finding that it, we sort of had a bad reputation in a way. I mean, some people didn't think that recruiters were the most savvy, perhaps, or the most professional. I thought, well, I'd love to change that. I mean, that would be something that would be fantastic. And you know what I discovered, Mark? And I think most people get there. I just didn't know this in the beginning. What, what I found is I was trying to sell my firm and they'd never done accounting or tax. And so I just hit roadblock after roadblock because they, they didn't even think we had the capability. And I later realized that it was easier to sell myself. It was much easier to say, my name is Michelle Parchman and I'm a CPA and I spent 17 years in public accounting. And I have this absolutely amazing audit manager from PwC. And, and, and that was easy. I mean, that was like a no brainer for me because that's what I knew. That was my background. That's, that's what I lived and that's where I came from. And then all of a sudden, potential clients, they could understand that I knew what I was talking about. And I wasn't really selling necessarily the firm or really me. It was, I knew the person that I was representing was a great, highly talented, credentialed person. And so I think that's, that was kind of, it sounds so basic, but that's, that was that first transition of a, aha, I can, I think I kind of figured out how to recruit. Um, and, and again, it was quite basic. Amazing. No, that's, I can see that being a light bulb moment and realizing you, your background was very, made you very credible. Um, and clients could understand that you knew what a good person, you know, what a good profile was and you'd be able to tell the difference and that sort of thing. So it's, yeah, absolutely brilliant. What were some, you said you're very process driven and until you, you had to make redesign the job to fit for you, what were some of those other changes that you made in order to, to make it work? Well, you know, having been in public accounting for as long as I was, you know, the training and development in um, Big Four is just unreal. You know, you're constantly learning new software, new processes, best practices. I, the first best practice I ever learned to me that was so real and impactful is Arthur Anderson did a study on um, Southwest Airlines was our client. And we wanted to figure out how we could refuel the planes faster. Because the faster you can re refuel, the faster you can get a plane off the ground back in the air, which means more revenues because you're having more flights. So we basically said, who is the fastest fueling type of thing in the world? And it was the Indy 500, you know, race cars. They refuel as fast. And so we studied how they refuel fast. I mean, how they do it faster. And so we replicated or transitioned that type of idea into from a, a car, a race car to a plane. And so to me, as simple as that sounds, and that's always been my philosophy is keep it simple. It made so much sense. And so I always make everything as simple as I can. And so to answer your question, I take that philosophy and I say, okay, how can we put in templates or how can we put in the first three or four or five steps that are the same thing, repeatable every time, but they're proven and they work. And that's really what I do. And so, you know, I have a whole like what I do every day, my top 10 things, and I can go through all those, but probably not necessary, but that's basically what I do. So it's replicating proven simple steps. Love it. That sounds great. No, I would love to know your top 10 things. In fact, you, um, you gave me something very tantalizing in your notes that you put, by the way, 
I believe that you're very process driven because you are one of the most organized guests I've ever had on the show. <laughs> the preparation was on par or on point, I should say. Um, how to bill half a million dollars and work less than 15 hours a week. That seems impossible. Tell me how, how one can accomplish that, Michelle. Um, it is 100% possible. And I have been doing it for years and years. And it is because um, I look at everything as ROI. So every single thing I do, I think in my head, what is the return on my investment? And, it, and for me, it's time, time for then money. And so I try to make sure that everything I do is going to take me the least amount of time and give me the highest amount of money. And so an example would be if I have a strategic plan of the 10 best steps that I do in every job order when I get it from a client and I'm going to try to find the best candidate for them, I am absolutely going to do my first and second step first that take me hardly any time at all. Like let's say 15, 20, 30 minutes or an hour. The last thing I want to do is step 10, which takes forever, which is creating an e-blast and reaching out to 500 people and, and putting together all these materials. And, and I don't really post, but do those things. So I'm going to always do steps one and two instantly and first. And I, I do my entire day that way. You know, I look at the top 10 things I have to do. I, I, I keep in mind every day what is closest to the money what is most important. And I do those things first. I don't do the easiest, fastest things necessarily if they're not most important and most efficient and don't have a return on my investment. They get pushed down to number nine and 10 every day. So that's just, and I run my life that way. Amazing. Tell, tell me more about this. So, um, I, I mean, the, the concept of thinking about the ROI, not just for money, but for your time is, is absolutely makes total sense. Um, working closest to the money, I understand what that means, but can you explain it in case people haven't heard that expression before? Absolutely. Um, so a, a pretty simple example would be, let's say this morning I woke up and I had two emails from clients. One client is a very large Fortune 50 company and they have, you know, HR in, in process and it takes me six weeks to make a placement. But they're a great company and people want to work there and my candidates would want to know that that is an open position because they're highly um, reputable and recognized. And then my second client um, calls and they have, they want to give me a three-week exclusive and it's a third fee. And it is in my wheelhouse, meaning it's a candidate that I probably can make 20 phone calls and find. So in that situation, I would invest all of my two hours that particular day if I'm working on that exclusive that's for three weeks that's in my wheelhouse. So that would be a return on my investment because I can probably make that placement in a week or two. Whereas the other Fortune 50 company, which is great, and I want to work that search and I want to share with my network that I'm working that search. But the chances of me placing that and or placing that in six weeks is much lower. So it, again, it's all about analysis of fastest and closest to the money. Beautiful. I love this. This is cool. Tell you mentioned 10 things you do each day. Can you t talk me through those? You know, it's, it's funny. People ask me that all the time because I, I think of myself, you know, we all self-reflect and we're good at some things and, and not so good at others. And I am a good planner. I think that's where I, I strive and I'm best in the morning. I'm most creative in the morning. And so, you know, I would have to say, Mark, it's not necessarily the exact same 10 things every day. 
But what it is, is coming up with what 10 things are most important for me to do today. And then what I try to do within those 10, because if I'm only going to work two or three hours that day, I may not be able to do all 10. But by golly, I will make sure I do the most important five things first. And again, it gets back to return on my investment and it gets back to, because I have such limited time, I can't waste time. I mean, there is no opportunity for me to waste time. It's the same when I work out or I exercise. I don't have time to go spend four hours and play golf, even though I would love to do that. I'm going to go to a hit class and do high intensity in 30 minutes because I'm going to get the best bang for my buck. Now, am I sometimes going to go enjoy golf and spend five hours on a Saturday? Yes. But again, um, I just look at everything analytically and, and efficiency. And my nickname, Mark, I should share with you when I was at Arthur Anderson, you know, ASAP, the, the acronym ASAP. Well, they called me ASP, ASAP for short, because I wanted everything to be done as soon as possible. That was just my, <laughs> I have a high energy and um, it was just my, a funny little nickname that they, they gave to me. Fantastic. So I'm just trying to understand, by the way, why are you only working two or three hours a day? Because I want to. Okay. I, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, but why started, do you want to? Like what, what, how did yeah. this, because it, it's, most people just assume it's a 40-hour week minimum, and then a lot of recruiters are working 50, 60, 70 hours, so, and they don't really question that. So what caused this? Do you even think, well, I, I could be doing the same results in half the time? It started in 2003 when we had three young children, and so I always wanted to be home when the bus got home. And so our youngest went to a, a private school. And so we had to pick him up at one. So it started when, you know, I felt like I needed to be home at one. And then the two older children got home at two. And so I just, I always wanted to be a mom first. And I really do want to talk about something that's really important to me too, Mark, and we can get to that next. And, and that is, I believe you have to know your values. And, mm -hmm. and I, I stress this, I stress this with people on a team that I've managed. I stress this with employees. I stress this with candidates and clients. You have to know your values first. And if you know where your values are, then you can set all your priorities around those values to achieve them. And so for me, to answer your question, my value was always first was my family and my children and my husband. And second was my career. And I realize other people have different values. I mean, they have, you know, church or they have, you know, health or a charity as a passion. Their career could be their passion, business, an elderly parent, you know, everybody has different values. But then once you know what your values are and you know those, the order of those values, then you set your entire day and your life around those. That's how you set your priorities. So that's how it initially started. But the two to three hours came when, even as my children started getting a little older, um, we started spending more time in the summers vacationing. And so I wanted more time away to spend with them when they were not in school. And so again, that was the push. But what I have found is that there are people and there are recruiters and recruiters that I know very well that are wildly successful and they work 80 hours a week and they grind it and they produce about the same that I do in a 15 to 20 hour week. And what I realized is it's, it's kind of that 80-20 rule. They're spending an extra 80% of their time to perhaps bill an extra 50 and I'm not willing to do that. And so... Part of it is too, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to prove that I can adapt and adopt my policies and best practices and ROI procedures to a two to three hour workday. And it works and it does. But everybody is, is successful in different ways. 
It's incredible. I love this philosophy and um, it's quite revolutionary. Like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm blown away, Michelle, by what you're, what you're sharing. I did a poll on LinkedIn recently to find out what fee percentage recruiters charge. And it confirmed what I'd learned from speaking with so many recruiters every day. The majority of recruiters are undervaluing their service and cutting their fees to become more competitive. Listen, if you want to protect your cash flow and build reserves to protect your business against whatever might happen in the future, you need to be earning more for each placement, not less. The challenge, of course, is how to increase your fees and still be competitive. iIntro has helped hundreds of recruiters to make small but critical adjustments to the way they pitch and win business so they can win more clients who are also willing to pay higher fees. For example, one of their clients typically earned £5,000 per placement. But just a few weeks after working with iIntro, she won a new piece of business on a retainer, so in other words, she got a deposit, and her fee was an incredible £20,000, four times her average. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained and book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mention that you're a listener of the Resilient Recruiter podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount off any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. You've taken this thinking of being more efficient and prioritizing effectively, and you've taken it to another level. Um, have you heard of Parkinson's Law? The work expands to you know fill the time that you have available. Yes. I think, uh-huh. uh, I think I'm guilty of that is, you know, however long I have, that's how long the job ends up taking. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm inspired. I'm going to be starting to adopt some of your <laughs> ideas here myself. Um, so coming back to the planning then, <clears throat> does this happen the night before? Does this happen like first thing? When do you do your planning and prioritization? Well, you will love this because this probably sounds diabolically different from everything that I've said. My brain never shuts off. So from a creative creative perspective, which to me is part of my, my planning, it never stops. And I know that there are a lot of wonderful recommendations on, you know, you plan at the end of your day, you know, right before you leave work, you know, maybe from four to five or you plan first thing in the morning or you plan whenever it's best for you. I plan it never, I never stop planning. I, it can be four in the morning and I will send myself a text to remind <laughs> I think of something really creative. It can be eight o'clock at night and I'm at dinner or happy hour and I think, oh my goodness, I need to call Mark. I will send my, so my planning never stops, but it's because my brain never stops actively thinking about ideas. I'm just an idea generator and it, though, that means nothing if you don't execute on it. And so if I don't write it down, I'm a to-do person. So if it's not written down, it probably won't happen. And that's basically the way I plan. Love it. Okay, that's that's cool. So physically, I'm getting really nitty gritty here because I I so much want to learn from you, Michelle. What form does your to-do list take? Is it electronic? Is it pad and paper? Like, or do you have a planning, like one of those hardbound planners? What do you you use to um, capture those ideas and then prioritize them? I have an old fashioned leather bound book that has, you know, um, children, how old are your children, Mark? They are 17, 13 and 11. Okay. So maybe you're, well, your 11 year old wouldn't do it anymore. But in the olden days, we had like um, three ring 
paper. Yeah, and it, had, it was like college ruled paper. Okay, so my my um, leather bound book still uses college ruled paper, and I love it because I can write a whole lot on one page before I flip to the next page, and I write small. So it is not electronic. Um, I still handwrite all my to dos. My children think I'm so old fashioned, but it works for me. <laughs> Absolutely, fair enough. That that sounds great. So then, to, to talk me through your thought process. Then you've you've got a list of lots of things you could do. You know, I, I need to call Mark. I need to do this. I need to do that. And then you probably have more than 10 things though, right? So how do you distill it down to the most important things that you need to accomplish that day? People ask me that a lot. And to me, it is so easy. That is the easiest thing to do every day is if you look at your list and I can look at it 10 times. I know I can pick out of those 10 things, which number two, number four, or number eight, what has to get done right now? To me, it's just so easy. It's like, how do you prioritize? How do you know which things are most important? Well, you do. And yes, you're <laughs> going to get interrupted. And, you know, and your son may call you and say, mom, I just got a speeding ticket or I need to do this or how do I do that? And yes, that takes you away. And that becomes the most important thing. But to me, it's just, it's a matter of sense. It's very basic. Fair enough. Well, you've told me two guiding principles. One is your values. So that's going to have an influence. And then the other is um, where are you going to get the best ROI return on effort? And so if you're using those as your filter, then that can help you to uh, to shuffle and, and prioritize those things. Um, so that's fantastic. And then, I mean, do you ever have to work a full day or is, like is two or three hours what you're aiming for? Or is that really what you do on a, on a typical day? So a typical day for me is I start early um, mm -hmm. and I'm best from about seven in the morning until about nine. And that's when I accomplished most that I'm going to get done during the entire day. And then I have um, gym buddies. And so I have these workout groups and we go every single day, Monday through Friday, 9.30 to 11-ish. And then um, I really usually kind of hang out with girlfriends and have fun or we may play pickleball or tennis and then in the afternoon and I almost always make phone calls around the lunch hour because that's when a lot of people can talk right that's the mm -hmm. only time they have to talk whether it's a client or a candidate they kind of still have the old-fashioned lunch hour and then I pick back up and I might work an hour in the afternoon between about five and six because again that's when my clients and candidates are available to talk to me so I would say it's kind of about a three hour perhaps work day. Um, yes, I sometimes have to work a full day. I mean, I, it, I might have a really harder search than I'm used to having, or it may be a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but it's very important to my client that I perform and that I find them talent. And so I might have to try avenues that I normally don't have to try. And yes, I would absolutely work an eight hour, but I probably didn't work the week before. I might've been on vacation. So I would still tell you my average is two to three hours a day year round. And I take most summers off completely. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. So then what happens during the summers if you have, you know, clients who have requirements and they're like, uh, hey, Michelle, can you fill this job for us? Well, I'm fortunately, and I don't know why this is, and it's, it, it has, it seems to have been fairly cyclical um, in the summer in my accounting space in San Antonio, it's fairly slow. And I, I just don't know if it's the San Antonio mentality and most everybody is in and out on vacation. Um, yes, I mean, I have positions right now that I'm working on. Um, 
I don't have a lot of positions in the summer, but I will work a little bit, but it's really not a lot. Awesome. Have you got uh, a support team either in San Antonio or even offshore? Do you have other people you can delegate things to? You know, I have not gone that route. And um, part of it is I don't want to have to manage anyone. And I mean that literally, like in any way, not even an admin. I don't want to have to manage because I don't, and I don't want to keep somebody else busy, like another recruiter. So, you know, I'm just a, a solopreneur and it seems to have always worked that way. And, you know, I have to tell you, Mark, I admire in Pinnacle Society, for example, we have just the most I mean, it's just a powerhouse of recruiters sitting around a table, 80 people. And I listen to some of these high producers. They have every software tool that is available to mankind. They do <laughs> robocalling and they download every single contact piece of information. And I mean, it, it just blows me away. And they have the applicant tracking systems and, you know, they have teams of 20 and I just don't. I mean, I, I don't even have an applicant tracking system. I still use Outlook for my contacts. I still save resumes in my, you know, Word and PDF folder wow. on my computer. I, I know it sounds so old fashioned, but I think the most important thing to take away is, yes, it may seem old school, but it works. And I modify, you know, I change things. I do upgrade. But at the, but at the end of the day, and I think I might have put these in my notes, I believe that my network is my bank account. And I spent 17 years at Arthur Anderson. And when we all left, we all lost our jobs. We were all displaced. Everybody had to go somewhere. And they have all become my clients and my candidates. Probably 80% of my network for many, 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 many years has been CPAs that are CEOs, that are CFOs, that have taken companies public, that now run, you know, some of the biggest, you know, Fortune 100 companies. And they are highly ethical. You know, they're credentialed. And they all also had best practices having been grown up at Arthur Anderson. And so I feel like that's why when somebody refers a candidate to me, they're good because they're coming from somebody that's great. Great people, no great people. I've definitely found that to be the, the, the case. And, and like meeting you is, a, is an example. Um, you know, John was awesome. He referred you. It's, it's definitely true. So t tell me more about your network being your bank account. Can you elaborate on that? I'd be happy to. I, um, I, I, I just feel blessed in the sense that I know really smart people and Ethics are very important to me, and I feel like CPAs alone, I don't, I, you know, I, I put that in a category because, you know, you do have to be certified, you are, you do have to be educated, you have to keep up with training and have 120 hours of educational training with the latest regu regulations and things, you know, every three years you have to have 120 hours, and just in general, CFOs, which is the space that I place in, are structured and they follow policy and they follow procedures and they're ethical. And I think because that, those type of people are my network. Mm -hmm. I just feel that when they refer candidates to me or they're a client of mine, they make me proud because I know that person is credentialed and they're coming with a thumbs up from somebody that I really trust. So that's mm -hmm. when I refer to them being my bank account is because they're so trusted and they're known and they're, they're, eyes are on them. You know, it's not just like it's any person at a company. I mean, these are people that are being evaluated by the government and regulatory bodies and things like that. And so that's why I think my network is so strong. Amazing. So when you talk about your network, because 
most recruiters, I think, would they would their network would be their database, their ATS, or their LinkedIn network. But you're not using an ATS. So when you talk about your network, are these just people you know personally through you know relationships you developed over time, or how do you define or quantify that network? Exactly. So you're you're right. I don't um, use LinkedIn as a network. I mean, I post things and that's really more for just getting the word out there. It's not because I'm expecting to get somebody, you know, connecting with me on LinkedIn. The, it's people. It's real relationships. I am a relationship builder, period. I mean, that is ha- that is my my motto in anything and everything I do. It's about building a relationship and it has to be trusted and we have to be partners and we have to be open and transparent in all of our communication. And so my network, it's people that I do know. Mm-hmm. I, and again, I get introduced to new people. Mm-hmm. So my network is constantly expanding, which is fantastic. Um, but yes, it's people. It, it's not a thing or a database or but then how do you track all of these people that you know just with uh, the contacts and outlook? It works. It works beautifully. <laughs> well, and, and then also um, I, I, I don't, uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this really easy for you to understand. All right. Let's say you, you and I get connected, which we did. Mm-hmm. And the best way that I ever think I'll remember your name. Let's say you have the craziest last name that I can't even spell. If I write in my Outlook contact, John Schlegel introduced me to him, and then maybe, you know, Resilient Recruiter or something, or Podcast 2021, I just put in those few things. I promise you, Mark, seven years from now, I can find you just by going into my phone and saying Schlegel. I mean, you're going to pop up just by saying, and so I just put in little, you know, notes like that. And that's all it takes for me to always be able to go back to that person to find them. And so, again, I told you, I I keep it simple. It doesn't get any simpler than my life. (laughs) Amazing. I'm I'm, uh, I'm getting, I'm buying into this for sure. So (laughs) coming back to the the heading of how to build half a million dollars and work less than 15 hours a week. Are there any other... Before we move on to like, you know, balance and, and, and things like that, like any other um, advice or strategies in connection with being super efficient? You know, I'll probably just recap in saying, you know, once you figure out, you streamline things and you know how something is a best practice, just making sure you replicate that. I really, Mm. I'm just, I'm efficient in everything I do. I would never recreate something. I mean, once I do it once, if it's solid, I'm going to keep doing it every single time. I'm very good with follow-up, very good. I'm very thorough. I'm very detail-oriented. And I know some recruiters aren't necessarily detail-oriented or aren't as analytical as I am. And it seems maybe a little bit out of score because, you know, we're kind of salespeople in, in many ways and relationship people. But I think that has set me apart in some ways is that detail orientation and just following, you know, constant best practices. And I, I revise them all the time. So I self-reflect and I certainly make errors and I do things that are not the best. And I'll be the first one to say, I'll never do it that way again. <laughs> and what is a better way to do it? And so I guess that would probably be it, that in a summary. Michelle, my colleague... Leanne Sarah Jones Hunt is going to love this episode. She is like, <laughs> you guys are peas in a pod. Um, I hired her because you're like what you're describing. 
I love intellectually. It's so different to me and the way I work. I would aspire to be more, more like you, but, um, but Leanne is, you know, would you guys would be singing from the same hymn sheet for sure. Um, well, you're going to have to connect us. I'd love to talk to her. I will. I will. Okay. Uh, definitely. So best practices. Um, what's your definition of a best practice? Like, and, and do you document these or how do you, you know, how, or is it just something you, you keep in mind? No, they're very well documented. So an right. example would be, and this is different. Some people just, it, I actually have had so much resistance in doing this when I, when I manage teams, mm-hmm. but because I am detailed, an example, mm-hmm. I will take a resume. And when I vet, I vet, I think as hard as I, as a client and probably 80% of people might not even get past me because I'm so detailed in the way that I vet. I look for red flags. And if there's any concern at all, I'm not moving forward. I mean, I'm not taking on risk. And that's why I've never had somebody that hasn't worked out in 17 years, because I am going to make sure that this person is 100%, you know, who they are and high character. So I have what's called a credential summary. And it's basically my interview notes, but it's, it's in different categories. And my clients love them so much because they're so detailed. And again, I'm, I'm serving CFOs and they're detailed and they're CPAs. And so they love more, more information, more notes, but it has everything you can ever imagine. So what is their personality profile? Um, their comp package in detail. I mean, this is their base. This is their bonus. This is their 401k. This is their equity. This is their next raise. This is what they're looking for. This is what's important. And then um, one of the most important questions I think I ask every single person and I ask of myself all the time is what is really most important to you? most important mm-hmm. to you in a job, a company, a client, in your, in your life, in your family. And my clients love that section because then they know, is it going to be aligned with what they're looking for or aligned with their company mission? But what is most important to you? And it changes in, in life. I mean, if you ask me, Mark, what was most important to me in 2002, it's different, not entirely, but it's different than what's most important to me in 2021. Uh, And that question, it's so fascinating too. When I interview a candidate, you know, 10 years ago, and I ask them that question, and then 10 years later, you know, their position's getting eliminated or they're looking for a new role. And I go back and say, what's most important to you now? It's wonderful to to do a comparison based on life events and and other things that have changed. But so my credential summary is, is very, very detailed. My clients love it. They will, the first thing they'll ask for is, I got the resume, but where's the credential summary? But normally I send them together. But that's, that is an example of a best practice. My clients love it. Um, HR never even looks at it. I mean, it's just like way too much information for them. Plus HR thinks that's their job. And, and, you know, and it's also my point of view. I'm the one that's interviewing them and creating the summary and HR wants to do their own thing, which I highly recognize and, um, and respect. And then I have another one that, um, the company that does my e-blast, it's just a kind of a standard form. I guess I think probably everybody would have that, but mine is, um, is something that is quite standard. Anyway, I just have lots of examples of of best practices that I do. Um, I just try not to recreate anything. So once it's really great, it becomes a template. Brilliant. Love it. And um, do you know what? This is very relevant to a discussion that uh, I'm having in one of my coaching groups at the moment, which is on creating systems, processes, standard operating procedures for your business so that you're not reinventing the wheel all the time and things 
run like a well-oiled machine and your best practices would, would, would fit right in with that. Um, something you said, one of the sections on your uh, candidate report, what did you call it? Your, the report? Uh, credential summary. Credential, credential summary. summary. There you go. Yeah. Um, what's most important to you? It reminded me of the first time I learned about values was when I was about 16, I listened to Tony Robbins' personal power mm-hmm. audio tapes. <laughs> And uh, he talks about values and making sure that you a know what your values are, b that they're serving you and they're not you know in conflict with what you're trying to accomplish. But the question for determining your or someone else's values is to ask what's what's most important to you. Mm-hmm. And that was the formula to elicit yeah. someone's values. And mm-hmm. you've um, you've tapped into that. And but I never thought of using it in this way to get to know your candidates better. It's really, um, it's very valuable, I have found. And my clients absolutely love that particular section. And sometimes I have to dig a little further, you know, so you'll ask the question, um, you know, Charlie, really, what is most important to you? And sometimes they'll just say one thing. And, you know, career advancement, for example, is quite common. And then I'll say, what else? And then they'll say something. And then I'll say, what else? And then they'll say something else. And then they'll say, well, you know what? The most important thing is, and it it blows me away because I'm thinking, so the most important three things they just said were not the most important. It it, (laughs) it takes kind of a conversation to get you there to then find out that location is the most important thing. And you're like, holy moly, you're kidding me. Location is the most important. You know, where you work is the most important. So again, it gets back to just asking, you know, basic questions. That's a beautiful little nugget there, which is subtle, but so important is never accept someone's first answer. Keep digging and by asking what else and what else and what Mm -hmm. else, you're just uncovering so much more information. The other follow-up though, is someone might say career advancement, but what does career advancement mean to them? That might be something mm-hmm. totally different to what career advancement means to someone else. So sometimes you mm-hmm. need to follow up and just get their definition of what you, what would represent, uh, you know, a really exciting career advancement for them. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned something to me, I am a master in a balanced life. What do you mean by that? 
<laughs> That's probably a bold statement. Um, but I say that, Mark, because I really feel like I have been successful working two to three hours a day and spending more time on family, vacation, health, and exercise than I do working. And so, and I think it all goes back to, you know, we are in control of what's most important to us and what our values are. We really are. We are in control of that for the most part. And I wanted to share an example with you. When I was in public accounting, I would have women, mostly working moms, come to me all the time. And they would be in tears. And they would be saying, Michelle, I get up at 4.30 in the morning and I get interrupted even trying to, you know, work out. And then I'm making, you know, breakfast for my children and they're screaming on the way to work. And then I'm running out of gas and I'm late to my first meeting. And then I have this and then I have that. And then I get called out and then I get home and, you know, I'm getting my kids in, in bed and I'm falling asleep and I'm back online and clients are, I'm emailing clients and, and they're complaining basically about they're working 16 hours a day and they're not seeing their family. And so then I would say to them, okay, well, you know, you're on the top engagement at the firm. Like it's the most prestigious client in the world. And, and the reason you're moving and working these hours is because they're doing M&A and you have to follow that and that might be in London. And so I said, what is most important to you? And, and they will say, oh, my children. You know, I'm missing my children. I, I don't get to see their soccer games. I'm not, you know, getting to put them in bed. And I said, okay, well, so we're gonna have to look at, we're gonna have to change some things. So you might have to go on to a mid-market client in San Antonio. You're not going to be on the top client. Well, then what would ultimately happen, and this is just one example, they would come back to me and say, I'm not giving up X client because it is, I mean, that's their worth and that's where they're learning and that's their career and that's their footprint on their resume. And so we would all come back to, okay, what is most important? Is it most important that you're working these hours and you're on this client or is it most important that you're a mom and your kids are first? And it's their decision and they get to decide those things. And so it all, again, comes back to the balance. Where do you want the balance? You really are in control of that. Now, the other person might say, I'm willing to get off that prestigious client for two or three years because it really is more important for me to be home and tuck my kids in in bed. But th that, those are just two examples that mm. it really does get down to if you want to be the master of balance, you have to be also willing to make those hard and tough decisions that then allow you to create the right balance that you really want. And so it gets back to what do you really want? Mm, absolutely. That's brilliant. I, I love that, Michelle, because um, I heard once and I, I, I think this is accurate. You can have anything you want in life, but you can't have everything you want. Mm -hmm. So at least not at the same time, right? Because yeah. going after one thing me, precludes you automatically from going off after something else that's over mm -hmm. here, right? You have to make those decisions that take you towards that thing that's most important to you, and me, maybe means that you um, you let go of other things which are which are less important. So that is amazing. Was this a process? Like, did <clears throat> how did you transition from working, say, a normal like when you're a CPA and you're working, you know, long hours, especially in, in busy season? or maybe even starting a new job as a recruiter and you're learning the ropes. At what point did you make this transition and how long did it take for you to sort of reorganize yourself to work fewer hours? That is a great question, Mark. Um, 
you know, I look back when I started in public accounting, I was single. Mm-hmm. I worked 800 hours of overtime my first one or two years. It was insane, the number of hours mm-hmm. I worked, but I could. I mean, I, I didn't have any other responsibilities. You know, I was not married again, didn't have children. And then when we moved to San Antonio and then we started a family, those hours got a lot harder to do. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we had our third baby, it was like, okay, you know, our priority shifted, you know, as I said before, you know, what becomes most important to you changes in time. And so I, it, it was literally a decision that my family is more important than anything else. And that moves to number one. And when that happened, work moved to number two. And it was a decision that I had to be home at one o'clock every day. That was the deal. Either I was going to stay working for that recruiting firm and they were going to allow that, or I was going to go out on my own. And so they allowed me to do that. So it was kind of a, just a draw a line in the sand. And so then your question is, okay, how did you then make that transition? Um, it, it's just driving that efficiency and it's driving that ROI, return on effort. I mean, it, it, it is constant in my brain. I mean, Honestly, if I have three calls to make, I'm going to make the one that is the most critical first before I make number two and three. It's, it's just the way my brain functions. I understand that. And that makes total sense. I guess what I'm getting at is if someone wanted to emulate what you've done, Michelle, you know, is it, would it be a case of saying, okay, as of Monday, I'm working, you know, four hours a day instead of eight hours a day. And that's all the time available. So I have to, I have to just make that work. Or is it a case of, okay, I'm going to, over time, I'm going to increase my efficiency and reduce the number of hours I'm working. So like, you know, next week, I'm going to make sure I only work my 40 hours and I'll just be much more good at planning. And then maybe next month I'll get it down to 30 out. Do you see what I mean? Like, is it a gradual, is it a gradual thing or is it just a decision? Like, nope, it's, it's uh, three hours a day from now on. That's it. I'll answer it this way. For me, it was draw a line in the sand saying, I'm, I'm going to stop working at one o'clock every day. So that, and I did that and I did it successfully. Um, I'm not saying it was the easiest transition, but yes, I did it. I have absolutely witnessed in Pinnacle and I've, I've taught some of what I do, my efficiencies and working less hours. And I have seen other Pinnacle members transition and they've done what you've done or mentioned. The second is the option of kind of gradually saying, well, I'm going to stop working at four now instead of working till seven or eight, or I'm going to, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And they've been successful doing that too. So what I would say is I think either will work. The key is going to be building inefficiencies that make you successful doing it. Because if you're not efficient at it, it's not going to work. I mean, you're not going to be able to to bill at the same level and support your clients at that level if you are not efficient in what you do. Amazing. Now, one of the things that makes you efficient is only working on jobs you're going to actually fill and make money from, right? And so you've mentioned a few times that you work exclusively. How did you come to that sort of philosophy of, you know, you're only going to work with clients exclusively, for example? Initially, it started, I um, when I left the firm that I was with, I had signed a two-year non-compete, which is a long time, but I also signed the agreement. And so I was absolutely going to adhere to that. And I also thought, okay, it'll give me a couple of years to be with my kids. And so um, what happened 
I had clients that started coming to me during the, the non-compete, like towards the end of it, they started coming to me and they basically said, Michelle, we've got to have you work on these positions. And by the way, that was within my agreement because technically I wasn't soliciting them. They were coming to me. And mm-hmm. so I just said, you know, I would only feel comfortable working on this if I had an exclusive because then I would know for sure there was no way I could be having a, a competitive situation. And that way I felt a little bit better about it. So that's how it initially started. Well, then it kind of the bells even, you know, started ringing. I thought, well, this is really, really smart. And so I started asking for exclusives as often as I can. And believe it or not, I get them a lot. I mean, it's, I'm still surprised (laughs) that I get so many exclusives and I only do a three week period because again, we've talked about my network. My network is not indefinite. It is not gigantic. It is not like many people's. Mine is definite. It's defined. It's a defined market. Mm -hmm. Typically, if I don't get a referral through my network within the first two to three weeks, I am not going to be successful for my client. Mm -hmm. And so that three week period makes sense to me. And it makes sense to my client. And I'm also very transparent. Once I get to that two-week, three-week period, if I haven't found somebody or if I'm feeling like I'm not going to, I let my client know. I immediately Mm. will say, it is now time for you to use other recruiters because I'm not going to be your best resource. And they appreciate that. I don't mind competition ever. It's just I like having the three-week exclusive first. So tell me, Michelle, why wouldn't you just insist on only working with clients exclusively? Great question. Um, because I there are, I could probably name 10 or 15 like that, great, great companies in San Antonio that would never do an exclusive because their corporate policy wouldn't allow that. And I still want them as clients. And I still have candidates that would want to work there. Makes sense. Fantastic. Michelle, I could keep talking to you for, for hours, but I'm conscious I've taken the equivalent of about a half a working day here already for you. <laughs> I know I got to go. So, <laughs> I got to go yeah. to the gym. Great. I'm glad to hear it. So um, thank you so much. It's been fantastic and uh, illuminating. And I'm, I've am i actually uh, decided myself, I need to re-look at my values because I've not looked at that for a while and reprioritize my time to see if, how I can shave mm-hmm. the hours down because they are creeping up. Uh, I missed lunch today. I was just telling you because I just worked straight through lunch. So uh, that's not ideal. Michelle, thanks again. And and I hope we get a chance to talk again in the future. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really want to help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.